Hi, my name is Erica Anderson, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tavid Nasir. And on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Erica Anderson. Erica is the founding partner of Proteus, a coaching, consulting, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. She has also served as a consultant and advisor to CEOs and top executives from several organizations, including GE, Time Warner Cable, Rockwell Automation, and Madison Square Garden. In addition to her popular business blog on Forbes, Erica is the author of three books, including her latest one, Leading So People Will Follow, which will serve as the focus of our discussion in this episode. Hi, Erica. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. As a fan of storytelling, I have to start by saying how much I enjoyed your approach of using the classical hero storyline to reveal the six attributes leaders need to exemplify to rally those around them behind a common goal or cause. As you point out at the start of your book, it was through examining various story constructs from around the world that you found this consistent pattern of behaviors or traits that the best leaders exhibit and exemplify in their role. I'm I'm curious to know, what got you thinking about this train of thought of using folk tales and other parables to help discover and explore what it takes to be a leader that others would be willing to follow? Oh, it's a wonderful question, and it was it was pretty serendipitous. So the so what was happening? This was about twenty years ago, and um, I had started just started my company, Proteus, two or three years before that, and um, I had start and I had little kids. This will come back later to whom I was reading lots of stories. So in my in the professional part of my life, I was uh, as my company started and started to grow, I was working with very senior people in organizations beginning to coach them and just observing them. And I noticed this thing that I started to think of as accepted leaders versus appointed leaders. And the one day when I had a real epiphany about this, I was at a company and the CEO was speaking to a group of 25 or 30 of the most senior people in the company. And I noticed that they were pretty neutral about it. I mean, nobody was kind of, you know, jumping up and running, screaming from the room, but they weren't completely bought in either. They were just kind of sitting there listening. Okay, sure. But then I noticed that most of the people in the room, at some point during while the CEO was speaking, they were glancing at this other guy who happened to be the CFO. And I could tell that they were looking at him to see what his reaction was to what the CEO was saying. And then after the speech, I noticed that in little ones and twos, they would kind of drift over to this guy's office. And I could see they were asking him, well, so what did you think? And is that really going to happen? And I just went, wow, so here's the guy, the CEO, who's got his name on the door, and he's ostensibly the leader, but they're treating this other guy as though he's their real leader. So there's some unconscious, although clearly not arbitrary, it's about something, because most of these people seem to feel the same way, <laughs> some choices being made here about who to follow. And, uh, and the more I started to think about that, because I noticed it in other contexts, too, I, I'm a big fan of history, and I, and I thought about it, and I thought, well... Until the last few hundred years, who we chose to follow was a life and death decision. I mean, if you chose badly, if you chose the wrong leader, you were much more likely to die, to starve to death or to be, you know, overrun by the enemy or, or whatever. And so I thought, okay, that sounds like a survival mechanism. <laughs> so it sounds like there's probably some pretty deep wiring in there that gives us some ability to choose well, to choose leaders well on a, on a kind of pre-conscious level. 
So at the same time that I was thinking this, and this comes back to stories, I was reading all these stories to my kids. And I'm also, not only am I a fan of history, I'm, like you, a big fan of stories. I, stories are, are really the, the libraries, the DNA of pre-literate cultures. I mean, long before people could read and write, the, the, by far the best way to pass on important information is in the form of story. Stories are memorable and replicable, and you, know, you can pass along what it means to be a good human being, and how to succeed, and what will make you fail. And I started to notice as I was reading these stories to my kids that because I tried to read them stories from all over the world, I noticed that there was, as you say, a hero story. There's a kind of story that I came to think of as the leader story. It seems to exist in almost every culture in a very similar way, that there's, there's a quest, you know, usually involves a princess or a dragon or both, and three brothers are usually given the opportunity to fulfill this quest. The two eldest fail spectacularly, and the youngest, who at the beginning is starting out in rags by the fire and no one believes in him, ends up fulfilling this quest and rescuing the princess and he becomes the king and we all live happily ever after. And I noticed that this quest had very, all over the world, there were very similar doorways that this kid had to walk through, uh, characteristics, if you will, that he had to either uh, have or develop and then demonstrate in order to get to the point where he could fulfill the quest and become the king. And so I thought, ooh, maybe this is the code. Maybe this is Maybe these are the stories that got passed down to say, don't accept someone to be your leader until they show up like this. And so I, th then I started reading these stories more intentionally, and I read hundreds of them and, and found this pattern, found that these six characteristics were really consistent across time and across culture. So that's kind of a long answer to a short question, but that's, that's how I got there. Well, you know what's interesting? You mentioned how your interest mirrors mine in both history and storytelling. And, you know, stories, as much as they are also the, the narrative and the way to impart information, they're also like a reflection of that time. They are kind of like a capsule of what it was like to exist in that period. And that's one of the things that was interesting is that even as you were going through the different stories from different time periods, you found these six attributes. And the first one is one that I think is an important one to discuss because it's one that we see many leaders struggling with due to this increasingly faster rate of change in today's business environment. And that is the trait you refer to as farsightedness or the ability to create a compelling vision that not only informs your employees of where you ultimately want your organization to go, but more importantly, why it should matter to your employees to the point that they want to be actively involved in seeing that vision come to life. It's similar to what you're referring to with that CIFO who you know, everyone was kind of looking towards him to get that value of, okay, is this really something we want to do or not? So with the greater pressure we see leaders under and how they increasingly are being judged on hitting these short-term targets, uh, how can leaders communicate, motivate, and empower their employees on a long-term vision while under this pressure of the current realities of a widespread short-term focus? It's a, it's a wonderful question, and it, it takes into, I'm going to pull a little forward from, so one of the other six um, qualities that we found is this quality that we ended up calling wise. So there, and, and they, a lot of the qualities balance each other. So what I've seen, and, and in the book, I use um, people that I've worked with, very senior people who I felt really exemplified these characteristics. And one of the people I used as my ex, one of my two exemplars for farsightedness is this wonderful woman, Bonnie Hammer, who runs all of NBC Universal's cable properties and also their two cable production studios. She's really a wonderful leader. And she's farsighted, but she's also wise. And so 
those two things, it's important to have them balance each other because especially now when things are changing so quickly. So farsightedness is, as you say, that quality of being able to articulate a compelling and inclusive future and then move toward it consistently. So you're not just talking about it, you're actually living in that decision based on those patterns. So given the short-term pressure that a lot of CEOs feel, it's important for them to not only be farsighted, but wise so that they can balance short-term and long-term necessities. And what I see is that um, leaders who are farsighted, but not wise, they don't, they lose track of what they need to do in the short term to keep people with them, their investors and the street, <laughs> so that they can achieve a long-term vision. If they're wise, but not farsighted, they may be, they may be making, you know, really good decisions, but not with that long frame of like, this is the castle, this is the hill. You know, there's actually an, another point, I think, in addition to the value of that trait of wise that you mentioned in your book that I think is especially important in terms of engendering a farsighted perspective in your leadership and within the people you lead. And that is not only that we need to communicate our vision in a way that others can see themselves playing a key role in creating it, but that we ourselves demonstrate our commitment and belief in that vision through our daily actions and words. I think many times when it comes to these big picture goals or vision, we tend to paint a picture of the destination, but then we pass it off to our employees to figure out the roadmap as a delegated task than a shared responsibility. Yes, I, that's a really good point. It's exact. I, I com- completely agree. So, so for each of the attributes in the book, so for your listeners, if they end up reading the book, you'll see that each of the six attributes, we've um, kind of unpacked it into five behavioral indicators because my approach is always very practical and pragmatic and I wanted people to be able to do something with this and really focus on developing their own leadership skills. So for instance, one of the five behavioral indicators in Farsighted, exactly as you say, is model the vision. So that's precisely as you're talking about it. It's not enough just to articulate it, even if you do so in a compelling, inclusive way. You then have to, in a way, be the keeper of the flame that keeps keeps people's eyes on those prizes that you've, that you've described. And I use an example in the book that I really like that, that is simple and makes a lot of sense. So this woman, Bonnie Hammer, that I use, as I said, as an exemplar, uh, one of the wonderful things, one of the wonderfully farsighted things she came up with a few years ago, one of the, one of the networks in her portfolio is USA Networks, which has been either number one or two for years in, in terms of uh, their ratings in the core demographic, 1849 demographic. So they'd been number one for a couple of years and people were getting a little complacent. And so what Bonnie kind of threw out to them as a possibility, as a far-sighted possibility is, hey, let's erase the line between cable and broadcast. I mean, we, USA Networks now is getting ratings that in some markets surpass, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. Let's just erase that line. I mean, uh, viewers don't think about it anymore, whether they're watching a show on cable or broadcast. Let's just in, in all that we do, let's, let's make sure that we get paid the same for our advertising. Let's make sure our publicity. So she threw that out. People really embraced it and got very excited. But then I noticed it was really great. In meetings subsequent to that, like in one meeting that I was in, the PR guy was talking about something that he was doing. And she said, yes, but does that help us erase the line between cable and broadcast? I mean, she just kept coming back to it as like, okay, this is a practical thing now. We're going to have to figure out how to actually get up to that castle on the hill. And I think that's what you're talking about is it's not just a slogan. It's, okay, let's it, let's live this. Let's make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of times if we just have that single conversation or that monthly conversation, 
instead of like the example you're showing where you're constantly showing people that you're assessing their ideas in terms of how does this going to help us achieve that shared purpose, that goal that we have, and your commitment to seeing it through regardless of what changes might happen externally, I think it makes it difficult when we don't do that, that for us to understand or appreciate some of the challenges our employees will face because there's a disconnect between what you're communicating to them or sometimes at them and what they have to deal with in terms of making this vision you have in mind a reality. Exactly, exactly. Now, I'm sure it won't come as a big surprise to regular readers of my blog that the next attribute you described resonated a lot with me, and that is that leaders need to be passionate about their role and what they want their team to accomplish. In particular, that we want to know and see that those in charge are truly committed to the endeavor, not simply because it's what they want to do, but because they make an effort to ensure this drive is meaningful to their organization and to their employees as well. So how do we balance what we're passionate about, what matters to us, while still taking into consideration or being attentive to the concerns and needs of those under our care? Yes, and you've hit exactly on what people call charisma. It means depth of commitment. People want to know, want to be able to look at their leaders and know that they're not just going to kind of wander off, you know, <laughs> that they're not going to either have sort of bright, shiny objectitis and kind of get distracted by things or that they're going to, uh, you know, get put off by adversity. They want to know that if something is important, that their leaders are deeply committed to it and will continue in their commitment. But at the same time, leaders who are really good at being passionate in this way are also oddly kind of dispassionate because they're, they're, they're willing, they're always willing to hear other points of view. And, and that's what I notice about leaders who really have this quality. It's an interesting, almost oxymoronic thing. They feel, they believe really deeply, but not, they're not dogmatic and they're not closed minded. They're, you know, so they can believe really deeply and yet they'll still really listen and open up to other people's point of view, take them into consideration. If they hear something that is compelling for them, they'll shift, but not in a reactive or superficial way. They'll shift based on really depth of thought and commitment. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense because I think it reflects a common thread that we see through all these attributes. And that is that where leaders are making the effort to not only listen to what those around them are saying, but they're putting aside their own assumptions or agenda to try and understand what's really behind the actions and words of those you lead. Why are they fully committed or invested in some measures while expressing hesitation, doubt, or even hostility to other initiatives? Yes, exactly. And you've hit on something that I think is hard for a lot of people to understand, which is that you know, this is when I when I was coming to this. What I began to realize is this is about um, whether or not a leader is followable. Whether or not people will really like they were doing with that CFO in the story I told at the very beginning, where if if they'd had to literally go into battle, they would have lined up behind the CFO and not behind the CEO. You know, when a leader really has these qualities and is really fully accepted, the team you can feel it. The team is like, we're with you. Let's go. Let's do this. It's, it's powerful because then, you know, there's this kind of coalescing, coming together, wonderful things can happen. And it's a, mute, a very mutual thing. In a way, although this is an odd use of words, what I see is that teams, individuals and teams follow these kinds of leaders because they feel that the leaders are following them. They feel like the leaders are really, as you say, really trying to listen and understand and how is this for you and what is it what is it going to take for you to be fully engaged in this and how can you be best utilized and that feels so deeply respectful and open that it elicits the same kind of behavior from the followers right absolutely and you know it ties in something i've been writing a lot lately on my blog which is that the idea that one of the keys of really succeeding at leadership is that you have to be able to empower those under you to succeed 
that it's not really about, okay, you're just here to help get this task or this process completed, or for me just to delegate the stuff on my plate that I don't like to do. It's that I'm here to see that collectively we're rallying around something that matters to all of us. This is something that we connect with and we actually feel a common bond. And consequently, my goal here is to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can to enable you to help you succeed, which is why I think these types of leader traits that you're talking about really involve people, not just, as you said, being completely passionate and focused only on what they care about, but being dispassionate in the sense of being willing to say, I want to understand how you see this so I can understand what I might be missing and what might be becoming an obstacle to you succeeding because I'm not seeing it. Yeah, exactly. And it also we're we're kind of being nonlinear here and kind of wandering around, but it also goes to the 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 trait, which happens to be the fifth on the on the list of six, of of generosity. Because people, you know, it's interesting, uh, when we've been using this model for 15 years, and especially during the kind of depths of the recession, when I would talk, when we talk about generosity as one of these accepted leader traits, people would immediately go, oh, oh but it's tough times, you know, money shorted. And I would always have to stop them and say, look, the generosity that followers are looking for from their leaders is not primarily material. I mean, of course, people want to make a living wage, and be, but really, is we're talking about generosity of spirit, which is what you were just talking about, where you feel like your leader really cares about you and cares about your success, believes in you, wants to help you succeed, will share time and faith and responsibility and power and information and resources in order to help you succeed. And if, you know, if the leaders have money, great, it's, they should share it and do, you know, stock options and profit sharing. But really what people want is your heart and your mind. That's what they want you to be generous with. Right. You know, I'm actually glad that you brought up that trait of generosity, because I think in today's 24-7 world, there's probably never been a greater demand for a leader's attention, time, and resources. And naturally, there is that necessity to triage what you dedicate your focus to. And so I think while most can agree and accept and want to be even generous with their time and resources, how do they address that challenge, though, given the greater demands on their time and resources when there's so little to go around and so many of it need us? How can leaders treat their generosity as something that's abundant and not a scarcity in how we lead those under our care? It's a wonderful question there, and there are a number of answers to it. Part of it goes back to wisdom, which is, you know, really listening, getting curious, seeing patterns, looking for your own highest and best good. But another part of it is that it is, like they used to say about childbearing, it's about quality versus quantity. If I give, like, here's an example. You notice that because we there we can multitask so easily now, you know, so sometimes people are on the phone with each other and you can tell that they're not fully attentive. They're doing other stuff. They're checking their email and they're writing a blog post and they're doing whatever. You, you, it doesn't feel good. If somebody purports to be listening to you, but they're trying to do two or three other things at the same time, it's not fulfilling. It doesn't feel generous. A friend of mine once said, you can't do two things at once if one of them is listening. <laughs> and, and I really agree with that. And generosity is giving your full attention. And if you give your full attention, even for a minute, it feels very rich. If I, if I am with you and I'm 100% with you and I'm really listening to what you have to say and then I'm really fully giving of myself, that feels like a very rich interaction, even if it's very brief. And I notice that the best leaders do that. They're not just sort of half into conversations. When they're with somebody, it may just be for five minutes, but they're totally in. And that feels really generous. Right. 
You know, another key point for us to recognize that in addition to listening attentively to what others have to say, is that we also have to provide an environment where employees feel safe and secure in speaking up. That we're demonstrating a level of care and trust in the relationship we have with those we lead so that we can have that open and honest conversation because our employees know they can trust us to respond appropriately and do the right thing with what we're telling them. And, you know, this, of course, leads to another important trait you discuss on how leaders can encourage others to follow them, and that is trustworthiness. Now, trustworthiness is certainly a major issue in today's leadership. As several studies have shown, not only that levels of trust continue to stagnate at the low end of the scale, but also that many employees leave their jobs not because of money, but because of their boss. So while we know that as leaders, we need to instill a greater sense of trust in our relationships with those we lead, we just don't seem to be doing the right things to foster that kind of trusting environment. So what do leaders need to do to exemplify trustworthiness in their leadership? Um, another wonderful question. So um, trustworthiness, it's interesting. We have, um, just to kind of pull back a little bit. So there, anyone who, who buys the book is has access to a free self-assessment. That, and we designed a, a, an assessment tool. And you can then around the six attributes. And then you can also upgrade. There's a, if you want to, you can buy a multi-rater assessment to find out what other people think. So when we were in the process of creating this assessment and validating it with validator, one of the things she found that didn't surprise us, but was interesting to have the data about, she said, um, what was demonstrated by the assessment that all of these are necessary, but not sufficient. Meaning because we had some demographics that correlated actual followability. We said, how followable, how acceptable is this person to you? And it was necessary for the per, for people to be pretty high in all these attributes to be fully followable, which is what we assumed would, would happen. But what we did find was that trustworthy was really foundational, that if you had any five out of the six, you were pretty much okay, except if the one you didn't have was trustworthy. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. So really foundational. And, and and your question, which is, how can people be more trustworthy? It's really attend to how you show up. And, and here's what I mean by that. So what we found is that, and if you look at the five behavioral indicators of trustworthy, part of the, some of them are about character and some of them are about just, are you competent to do your job? Do you, do you actually, can you do the things you say you're going to do? But a lot of it is about, do you tell the truth? Do you speak for the greater good? And, and, Leaders tend to, th if you ask a leader, he or she will say, yes, I am trustworthy. But then often their followers don't see them as trustworthy. And sometimes it's very small things. And here's an example I get, I'll, I'll give. About a year ago, I was coaching this guy, wonderful guy, really like him a lot. And in many ways, he's a good leader. But he got a low score on trustworthiness. And he was appalled with himself. That it really upset him. And so when I dug into it a little bit with him, he was a very kind of shoot from the hip guy who would kind of say whatever, you know, he's very spontaneous. And so his name is Tom. So I said to him, Tom, do you sometimes like, let's, let's pretend somebody comes into your office and shares an idea with you and you get really enthusiastic and say, wow, we're going to, yeah, let's pursue that idea. He goes, yes, I say that all the time. <laughs> I said, okay. Does somebody then another person come into your office the next day or the next week, say another idea, which is mutually exclusive from the first, and you get all enthusiastic and say, yeah, we definitely need to pursue that idea. And he stopped. He goes, yes, I do that. I said, okay, if those people compare notes, that makes you seem untrustworthy. And they do because people do. 
So if you say one thing to somebody, just even out of enthusiasm, not out of duplicitousness or malice, and then say something else to somebody else, which seems mutually exclusive, then if those people talk to each other, then it seems like you're untrustworthy. Sometimes people say one thing to one person, one thing to another because of that reason. Sometimes the messages don't match up because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And there's all kinds of good reasons or, you know, seemingly justified reasons, but it ends up making you look like you are not a trustworthy person. So that's one whole area. Another whole area, and this is something you said, is sometimes people react in a way that seems justified to them, but doesn't feel trustworthy to others. Like for instance, there was another guy I was working with who said, said in a meeting, you know, you know, I really need you guys to come with your best ideas. And I feel like you're not telling me, you know, what you really think about this. And then in the next meeting, somebody told him what they really thought, and he just jumped down their throat. So that seems untrustworthy to say one thing and then react in a way that doesn't line up with what you've said. So there are little day-to-day things that, that um, leaders do that aren't egregious. They're not embezzlement. They're not, you know, telling a lie, but they, they read as untrustworthy. So you really have to vet yourself. You really have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we see as a common thread in what you're sharing as these examples is that we need to be consistent between our actions and our words. If, for example, we say that a particular project is important to us and to our organization, then we need to be able to back that statement up by doing whatever we can to protect that project instead of leaving it to our employees to demonstrate that this project is worth saving. And I think that ties into one of the other points you mentioned in your book about being trustworthy, which is the ability to actually do what we say we're going to do, that we have the competence and capability to follow through on what we stated, which in the last example you gave, this is a perfect example where, you know, you're asking for that kind of feedback, but then when they do, they're not getting that safe environment we talked about at the beginning of this discussion on trustworthiness, where I can say what you're asking me to be open about without feeling like I'm going to get incriminated or penalized for it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And also just doing the things that you say you're going to, the things that you commit to. If you as a leader say, we are going to do X by date Y, and then you don't do it, and nobody ever hears about it, then your credibility just went down two notches, you know. Um, and, And trust is like a bank account. I mean, the way you build trust with people is by day after day, just what you say, matching your words with your actions. I said I was going to do this. I did it. I said it was going to be okay to say this. It happened. I said that I was going to follow through. I did. I told you I wasn't going to share this with anybody. I didn't. You know, just it's like putting pennies in the bank. And when you build up a one of the things I've noticed, which is really helpful for leaders to know, is when you build up that trust account just day after day, you do things that should demonstrate your consistency, your um, your ability to deliver on your promises, your ability to hold confidences and be discreet then you build up an account so that when something happens, then people don't immediately lose trust in you. Like I'll, I'll give you an example that I give people all the time, and it really resonates with people. Okay, so let's say that you, there's, you have a new colleague, somebody that you don't know. You don't have any kind of a trust account with. You're just at zero. And you invite them to lunch. And you say, you know, let's meet at this restaurant at 1230. And they go, okay. So you show up at the restaurant at 12.30, and they're not there, 12.35, 12.40, you text them, you can't get them, you call them on the phone, you can't, you know, you don't know this person from Adam. By about 1 o'clock, you're thinking, what a flake, because you've gone into overdraft on the trust. You don't, you know, you didn't start out with a trust account, so now you're, you have a negative balance. So rewind the tape, you're, now you're meeting, you're having lunch with someone that you know and trust well. 
you've built up a lot of trust with this person over time. So you're there at 1230. They're not there. 1235, 1240. So you text them. You can't get them. You call them on the phone. You can't get them. You know, by one o'clock, you're worried. You're thinking, I hope they're okay. What happened? Not they're a flake, you know, because you trust this person and you assume that they would have showed up if they could. So it's not all or nothing. If you day to day are consistent, discreet, keep confidences, deliver on your promises, then people will see you as a trustworthy people and they'll give you a trustworthy person and they will give you the benefit of the doubt when, when they occasionally need to. I think that's a great example and great story, Erica, because, you know, we hear a lot about now in this new world of work, it's really about the relationship we have with those we work with and those we serve. And I think this scenario you give of the difference between when we don't really have a bank of trust with somebody and they don't take into consideration how our lack of contact will basically set us up with a negative perception for our relationship compared to when we build that trust, now the person's concerned about us. Yes. I think that's such an important point because this demonstrates an investment in the relationship from both parties that leaders are showing that I care about you because I'm investing in my relationship with you. And I think that's what you're referring to about building that bank of trust, is that we're showing an investment in the relationship, not just in what the person does as a task within our organization. Yes, exactly. And it also works in the other direction. So one of the things that I, I work with leaders on when we're talking about trustworthiness is not only do you have to be trustworthy, you have to be trusting. You have to demonstrate that you can trust people. It's a, it's a, it's a really important model. And so the kind of flip side of this, you know, having a bank account of trust is that you as a leader need to be careful that you're assuming positive intent. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes leaders are so quick to go to, oh, that guy's screwing up or that guy doesn't care. It's like, hold up, hold up. When if, if someone does something that you don't understand or you don't like, I'll, I'll give you another example. So let's say that I'm your leader and you've committed to me to get something to me by a deadline and and you don't do it. If my if the first place I go is negative intent, if the first place I go is you're a flake, you don't have a good work, work ethic, you don't really care, then by the time I get to you to talk to you about it, that already will have tainted my what then my conversation becomes with you because I'm going to be confrontational like, hey, you told me you were going to get me that and you didn't, you know. <laughs> but if I, if I stop myself and assume positive intent, if I literally stop and my self-talk is, you know, I've never had negative experiences with Tanvir. He's a good guy. I think he cares about this project. I wonder what happened. I, I will assume that his intention was good and something got in the way. Then if I go to you to have that conversation, I'm going to be in an entirely different mindset. I'm going to come to you and say, hey, it's unfair. What happened? Didn't I thought we agreed you were going to get that to me on Thursday. Much less likely to make you defensive. Much more likely to allow you to then trust me in return when something goes awry. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Erica, we've covered a few of the traits you describe in your book as being the critical ingredients we need to have in our leadership model to ensure we can encourage and facilitate those under our care to follow our lead. And while there's understandably an interconnection between many of them, I'm wondering, how do we make sure we're truly living up these attributes? How can we assess or ensure that we are still being trustworthy, that we're being generous and inclusionary in our vision, not just for today, but in the weeks and months ahead when we face yet another set of challenges or obstacles? After all, to use your storytelling motif, 
For many of us, we might come to an end of a chapter, but the story itself has yet to finish. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a wonderful question. The only one that we have, before I go to that, I just want to fill in a slight blank. The only one we haven't talked about it at all is courage. And I just want to say one, a couple of things about courage. So uh, people want their leaders to be courageous. And, and by that, we mean both the, the, the thing you usually mean when you say courageous, which is able to make difficult decisions with limited data and a limited time frame, you know, kind of running into the burning building to save the business version of that, running into the burning building to save the kid. But almost more important, the kind of courage that people want their leaders to demonstrate is they, they want to see that leaders are willing to do things that are personally risky or uncomfortable or difficult for them for the good of the enterprise. That the, because what that is a clear message is that the good of the enterprise is more important to this leader than their own personal comfort. And if people feel that, then they're like, okay, I feel safe with this person. I feel like this person is taking the good of the enterprise, the good of the whole, the good of the team seriously, and will do things that they don't care to do or don't like or don't feel comfortable doing for our betterment. That's a powerful, powerful signal. So that's, I, I just wanted to put that in there. And, and one of the aspects of that is taking responsibility for mistakes, which is all, always a little uncomfortable, <laughs> and apologizing for them. Courageous leaders apologize for their mistakes. It's not weak. It's very, it's very strong. So, but I just want to put that in. But to go back to your question, the, the way to, to keep yourself accountable to these, it's one of the reasons why I was thrilled when this was so relatively simple. I mean, I assess myself as a leader because, you know, I run my own company with 20 some people and I, I lead them, you know, I assess myself against these attributes on a daily basis. I really check. Am I, am I with the people I lead? Am I being farsighted? passionate, courageous, wise, generous, trustworthy? Am I actually doing these things? And I use the behavioral indicators that we, that, that, that I offer in the book because they're good checks on my own behavior. And then another thing is just to get the feedback. I mean, I ask people for feedback and I also, it's why we created this multi-rater assessment. You can, you know, readers of the book can, it's an electronic survey. You can ask the people around you, your followers and others, how, how do you see me? How am I doing on these? So, you know, when I first, how I do books, I tend to write them and then send them to my agent (laughs) rather than just, you know, do a chapter. And, and, um, so when I sent it to Jim, my agent, he, he, he really liked it. And he, he immediately, you know, called me up and said, boy, I really feel like you've, you've cracked an important code. There are so many books about leadership and, and it seems so complicated. And these are six simple things that he said, I could, I could look to myself to see if I'm doing. And that's, that's what I hope. I hope this provides a simple model for people that they can bet themselves against. Right. Well, Erica, I want to thank you for sharing your insights from examining hero-themed stories and parables to decipher what key attributes we need to be effective as leaders, attributes that are seen and required by employees and people in cultures and societies throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we've, we've had some interesting experiences now that we've taken this internationally. We, we have yet to find a culture... Uh, where this doesn't resonate. So I'm, I'm reinforced in my belief that this is a really core human thing. And the other thing, one last thing I want to is, is it really is not about position. I was speaking to a, a group of young professional women the other day. And they were saying, well, how can we, we're, some of us are in entry-level positions. How can we demonstrate these? And I said, you know, if, if you think about leadership as um, that a leader is someone who guides and inspires and motivates people toward an outcome, you can do that when you're 10 years old. 
And people in their very first entry-level jobs can, begin, can demonstrate these characteristics. I mean, if I, if I had an assistant, for instance, who was farsighted in the sense that she saw here, she saw beyond their own job to how they could support the organization, to what the organization was trying to do, if they were deeply committed, if they were stand-up people who were able to take responsibility and apologize for their mistakes, if they thought deeply and were really curious and tried to make moral, the moral choice, if they were generous with collaboration, with their time, with their understanding, and if they were trustworthy, that person would be somebody that I would want to have in my company and that I would probably promote. You know, you can, you can demonstrate these leadership characteristics at any point in your career to great good. You know, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's understood when it comes to leadership is that to be a good leader, and something we discussed in this conversation, is that you have to also be a good follower. Yeah. And so certainly... It doesn't have anything to do with position, but really, like you said, it has to do with these different attributes that you discuss and how well and how effective we are in demonstrating them in how we show up, regardless of what position we have in our organizations. Yeah, exactly. Well, Erica, thank you so much. This was a really fascinating conversation. And as a fan of storytelling and even history, I just really enjoyed how you were able to find these common traits and just distill them down into a manner that's really easy for people to understand, but also to assess themselves and understanding it and how they show up in their jobs and their roles and in their interactions. How well are they doing it to ensure that they are someone that people would want to follow? Yeah, well, I'm so glad it resonated for you. And uh, you're, you're a wonderful asker of questions. So it, it makes it easy to get at the heart of some of this stuff. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I've been talking to Erica Anderson about her latest book, Leading So People Will Follow. To learn more about Erica's book and her work, visit the webpage for this episode at TanvirNasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as the topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage or by filling out the contact form at tavernasir.com. And if you found my show on iTunes, please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tavernasir. Thanks everyone for listening.